dosages until by shifting back and forth you find the right dosage to treat this person. So having done that, you can now claim if people come to you having similar symptoms under similar circumstances, this is the correct uh, medicine or method to treat this illness by experimentation. That is what we do in our physical biological world. Is the treatment, the exorcism of a human being, uh, which is now a spiritual treatment, is that governed by the same laws? Meaning that the person who claims to be an exorcist, he can try this out, he can try that out, see what works, what doesn't work, and so on. So then he builds up a body of information, which is his methods for exorcism. The point is that this area, it's being in the spiritual realm, right? Now we're talking about ibadah. We're not talking about mu'amala. Treating each other with medicine, physical medicine for physical ailments, this comes under the general heading of mu'amala. That is, uh, social dealings, human beings dealing with other human beings, helping them out in this regard, etc. Whereas, treating spiritual ailments, this comes under the heading of ibadah. Ibadat. Because you're calling on Allah, this has to do with now worship. You're doing something you believe is pleasing to Allah. This is now ibadah. And the rule, the general rule to keep in mind, when you're dealing with mu'amalat and ibadat, is that when you're dealing with mu'amalat, everything is halal except that which has been specifically forbidden. Everything is halal except for that which has been specifically forbidden. This is based on the general instructions from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran where Allah says that He has created for us all the good things, you know, Ahallallahu lakum al-tayyibat, you know, you know, and Harram alaykum al-khaba'ith, you know, these kind of uh, expressions where Allah gives a general statement to all the good things are, uh, are good for us, or where He has listed and forbidden certain foods, and then He says, lakum ma wara And whatever is beyond that is halal for you, just open. So from these instructions, we have the general understanding that the uh, halal is that which of the things that we do in our uh, mu'amalat, that this is uh, in general permissible, except for those things which a text com uh, comes to say it is forbidden. And if we didn't follow this principle, then our life would be very difficult. If you had to bring evidence for wearing a checkered shirt, and you for wearing a blue shirt, and this one for wearing a belt in his pants, that one for wearing brown shoes, this way, if you had to bring evidences that said it is permissible to do these things, you couldn't do anything. You wouldn't be able to do anything. So, what is understood is that it is all permissible, except for that which has been specifically prohibited. Maybe you should tell the kids to just stop walking back and forth and wait until afterwards. Huh? The point is, 
when we come over to ibadat, to issues of worship, then the general rule is that all forms of worship are forbidden, except those which have been specifically permitted. This is a different rule. Why? Because the Prophet ﷺ said, مَنْ أَحْدَثَ فِي أَمْرِنَا مَا لَيْسَ مِنْهُ فَوْرَدْ Whoever brings anything new in the religion, which is not a part of it, it is rejected. He has already identified that anything added, anything new is forbidden. So therefore, it is only what has been already identified. As Allah said, Allah said that today I have completed for you the religion. It's complete. So anything beyond that is additional. So what is acceptable in worship is only what has been specifically defined. And the Prophet ﷺ had also said, مَا تَرَكْتُ شَيْئًا يُقَرِّبُكُمْ إِلَى اللَّهِ إِلَّا وَمَرْتُكُمْ بِهِ I've not left anything which will bring you closer to Allah without instructing you to do it. That means everything that you feel will bring you closer to Allah. This is ibadah. You're doing things because you believe they will bring you closer to Allah. So when a person wants to celebrate the Prophet Wasallam's birthday, believing that it will bring them closer to Allah, that's why they're doing it, they're not just doing it because of a social event, they're doing it because they believe it's something pleasing to Allah, it will bring them closer to Allah. The Prophet said, I have not left anything which will bring you closer to Allah without instructing you to do it. So we have to ask, is the celebration of birthdays, the Prophet's birthday or the birthday of the saints or whatever, is this something instructed by the Prophet Muhammad If we find that it is not, then we have to leave it immediately. If before Juma we find that the Muaddin he comes and sings a song before he starts to say Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, he's got a whole long song he sings before that. And you know, at different points he's having these uh Songs that he sings sounding almost like the Adhan. We have to ask ourselves, did Prophet Muhammad instruct us to do this? We ask, where did it come from? We cannot find it in the Sunnah. Prophet did not instruct it. The Sahaba didn't understand it. They never did it. The early generations never did it. It's something started by Muslims here in Sri Lanka. You go to other parts of the Muslim world, they're not doing it. Only here in Sri Lanka. This is a sign to tell you this is innovation. People have made this up. It is not a part of the religion. So the basic principle when dealing with the religious practices is that they're all forbidden except for those which have been specifically permitted. So when we come to exorcism, which is dealing on the spiritual realm, now you're calling on Allah, you're reciting Quran, this is something which is pleasing to Allah. You believe it's bringing you closer to Allah in treating the person this way, then now we have to follow the prophetic methodology. We cannot just go out and whatever seems to work, we're going to use it. Because something may work for us, not because this thing really has the power, but the human mind has the power to heal itself. So, the first step in terms of exorcism, the first step is to undo the charm. If a person has come under a magical spell, 
one tries to find out if a charm is in their house, you go searching through their house, whatever, you know, if you, you know, just checking around their circumstances to see if there is some kind of a charm which somebody has left in their house, which is used for the uh, magical effect. Or if, uh, in the case of somebody who seems to be possessed, and in treating that person, the possessing jinn reveals where the charm is, you go find the charm and destroy it. This was the methodology of the Prophet ﷺ. Of course, it was revealed to him where the charm is, where the charm which, which the, this Jew, uh, Lubayb, had, uh, Ibn Asam had put together and put inside of a well, they would not have found it had it not been through revelation. That Allah revealed to him in a dream that this is what had occurred. And so he was able to instruct Ali to go and find that charm, take it out of the well, and take it apart and recite the two quls uh, from the end of the Quran over it. So if you do get a hold of the charm, then as you dismantle the charm, you recite the quls uh, over it while doing it. The second method is that, or the second step is that of addressing the possessing body, right? As the Prophet ﷺ addressed in the case of the boy, uh, identifying yourself and telling the enemy of Allah to get out. Of course, we're not going to say I'm a messenger of Allah because we're not, right? We stop at just telling the, the possessing entity, the satanic entity, to get out in the name of Allah. And of course, important to uh, use the name of Allah, in the name of Allah. Now, I should just mention here that there's some people who in exercising may call on the name of Muhammad Wasallam. They may say in the name of Muhammad, get out. Or in the name of uh, Abdul Qadir Jilani, get out. And people may also be cured or appear to be cured. But these are cases, as I explained before, where the jinn is leaving not because it is driven out, but because shirk has occurred in its presence, and that is what it was seeking. That it would fool those people around them into thinking that Muhammad Wasallam's name has caused this uh, jinn to leave, or this saint, or whatever. So let us not be fooled, where you may hear of cases where people are exercising, using other than the name of Allah. The third step is involves cursing the, in the uh, possessing body. Cursing it. Cursing it don't mean, I don't mean using swear words, curse words, I don't mean this. Cursing it meaning invoking Allah's curse on that being. As we have mentioned in a particular uh, narration from the Prophet in which Abu Darda had said, Allah's Messenger stood up in prayer and I heard him say, I seek refuge in Allah from you. Then he reached out his hand as if he were snatching something. 
And then he said three times, I curse you by Allah's curse. Al-anaka bil-anatillah. Al-anaka bil-anatillah. I curse you by Allah's curse. He said, when we were finished the prayer, we asked the, the Prophet ﷺ, O Messenger of Allah, we heard you say something in your prayer which we have not heard you say before. And we saw you stretch out your arm. He replied, indeed, Allah's enemy, Iblis, brought a fiery torch and tried to thrust it in my face. So I sought refuge in Allah and I cursed him by Allah. Had it not been for the prayer of our brother Suleiman, I would have tied him up for the children of Medina to play with. So this is the third step. Now there is also a Sahih narrations wherein the Prophet Muhammad in case of one child that was brought to him where he hit the child in its uh, chest or in its back and the child's back, right? This is like a hit of this kind, right? Not as some people started to practice afterwards where they're taking whips and sticks and beating these people into the black and blue and you know their welts all over the bodies bleeding and they say they're chasing out the jinn that the person doesn't feel it you know they're beating the jinn but of course when the person comes up they're quite in quite pain quite a bit of pain so this methodology is not acceptable Muhammad also prescribed a variety of different medicinal treatments. Among them, he prescribed the water from truffles, which is like a mushroom which grows in the in the forest or in certain areas. It's sort of looking like a a fan. Like they taking this, uh, boiling it, and using the water to drink. He also prescribed ajwa dates. This is the dates from Medina, big dates. These, and also we have examples where some of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad uh, recited Surah Al-Fatiha over some individuals who were suffering from ailments. And after reciting it over them com- continually, uh, after a number of days, they became cured. So the use of Surah Al-Fatiha for uh, dealing with issues of possession, this is valid. Now, among the other practices which people are involved in, they have this thing of reciting over oil or over water, and they tell you this is holy water which you should drink, and you should bathe with, and these kind of things. These are not based on any authentic narrations. They're not based on any authentic narrations. The practice where people have of tying fingers and toes, or say they're chased the jinn until it reaches in the people's hair, they tie the hair in a knot and they cut off the hair and they burn it in a bottle and all these kind of other practices, these have no basis in the Quran and the Sunnah. And similarly, there are other practices, you know, where people, you know, believing because they have observed the person was possessed, for example, you know, they might, see, they might see that the person's hand starts to rise and it's shaking. They say, oh, the jinn must be in their hand. So they start to squeeze their hand. They think they're going to chase the jinn out through the fingertips. No, no. We don't have any evidence for this. You know, ignore these things. Uh, 
Also, we have people in ignorance talking to the possessing jinn and asking the jinn all kinds of questions. I remember there was even one book called um, Discussions with a Jinn, you know, where, which was written in Egypt by one of these people who were involved in exorcism. The whole book is a whole big long conversation with the jinn, you know, about what the jinn's world is like and all kinds of... The jinn, Prophet said that they are compulsive liars. They are compulsive liars. In the case where Abu Huraira had that encounter with an evil jinn where he was left to look after the zakah. And this jinn came in the form of a human being and tried to take something from the uh, zakah. And he caught a hold of him and was going to turn him over to the Prophet Wasallam. And he offered to teach him something, right, which would protect him throughout the night. And Abu Huraira said, okay, teach it to me. And he taught him Ayatul Kursi. That if you recite this before going to bed at night, it will protect you throughout the night. And the Prophet ﷺ related that to Prophet, to, sorry, Abu Huraira related that to the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Sadqa wa huwa kathub. He told the truth, but he is a compulsive liar. So you cannot depend on the jinn to give you information, you know, about, uh, People will ask them, are you a Muslim jinn, are you a Kafir jinn, and go into all these kind of things and try to convert them and all these kind of things, you know. This is not from the methodology of the companions and of the Prophet We cannot trust the jinni. That's why you talk, you hear people talk about so and so had a jinni and he used to recite only Quran to them. No, please. Or so and so had a jinni who would do work for them in their house, clean their houses for them. Uh, please, if we have these kind of things happening, let us not be fooled into thinking there is good here. Because the jinni, if it is going to try to catch people, it will not come with its evil right from the very beginning. You know, like a fisherman when he wants to catch a fish, he doesn't put a bare hook in the water expecting any fish to go and bite a big a hook of metal. No, he will put a worm, right? Or some insect or whatever on it. So when it's in the water, the fish thinks it's biting a worm, something which is beneficial, but then the hook catches it. Similarly, the jinni, you know, in order to trap people, may come to them with what appears to be something good, something beneficial. We said that this all goes back to understanding the world of the jinn. Where that world interferes with our world. And we should not take this lightly because Allah has instructed us and informed us about the world of the jinn. And you know, some people say, it's just superstition, you know, you really don't need to get into this jinn thing, you know, just deal with your life, don't worry about the jinn. Well, if the jinn wasn't important, then Allah would not have spent so many verses of the Qur'an telling us about the world of the jinn, warning us and giving us uh, instructions how to seek refuge in Allah from that world, etc., etc. If it wasn't important, Prophet Muhammad would not have given us detailed information about that world. So let us not take this lightly. This information has been given to us so that we may protect ourselves from the harm that may come from this world. So that we don't become 
deluded by supernatural phenomena which we may observe or which may uh, take place or we may hear about, etc. This is to pr protect us, to keep us on the correct belief and to know that it is Allah alone who is in control of everything and everything else which takes place is by His permission. And we said that the process of reincarnations, reinforcement by incidents in the lives of children or even people who go under uh, hypnotism, you know, people are under hypnosis where they speak about previous lives and people think, you know, I was the, the Queen of Sheba in the last life or so many lives back or I was Julius Caesar and people have all this kind of, you know, has become quite popular for people to go under hypnosis and then they, they go back in life to the previous lives that they lived. You know, there's all this information and stuff that they're giving because sometimes they give some details about things that there's no way they could know about it themselves. They're not researched thoroughly enough. They're a common average everyday person. They haven't studied ancient Greece and things to have this kind of knowledge. That's what gives the people the impression that if they speak of these things, they must be previous lives. But no, if we understand the world of the jinn, these thoughts, these ideas can easily be put in the human mind where the human being now expresses these things and gives people the impression that it was some previous life. There is only one life, this life. There's no coming back except for the judgment. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.